Our text for today is Mark 13, 32 to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the gospel of the Lord. So as we finish our four-week walk through one of the most easily misunderstood chapters in the entire Bible, Mark 13, we are also finishing our year-long walk through the Gospel of Mark. Um, the Gospel of Mark, of course, continues on with chapters 14, 15, and 16, but we covered those chapters back at Easter. So if you want to hear chronologically what happens next in the life of Jesus, go back to those messages at Easter time, and uh, you can hear the rest of the Gospel of Mark preached for you. Um, but today we're going to finish up this, this speech of Jesus, this long section, as he finishes uh, what we've said is a dual fulfillment prophecy. Right? First, preliminarily, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in August of 70 AD, and he's using that as a picture, a type of uh, what life is going to be like after the destruction of the temple until Jesus comes back. Uh, what changes, though, at this point in the text is that Jesus says, but about that day. So he's, he's finished last week, you remember, by saying all these things will happen before this generation passes away, right? All these things that I've said they are going to happen and you disciples are going to see them. But then he switches and says, but about that day, but about that day, which means he's now not focusing any longer on the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but exclusively thinking about the end of the world. Okay, so keep that in your mind as we go through these verses. Jesus is talking exclusively about the end of the world. So what I want to do today is I want to do three things. First of all, as we get into the text, I want to take on a difficult passage. Then I want to look at the main point of this entire section. And then I want to back up to a 30,000-foot view and look at the whole of the Gospel of Mark and ask ourselves, what have we learned this year as we've gone through every verse? Okay, so we'll start with the difficult passage first. The text starts, but about that day, no one knows, not even the angels or the son, but only the father. So if you read this verse and you're a biblical skeptic, this looks like perfect fodder for your argument, doesn't it? The logical premise first is God knows everything, right? We would agree. You say Jesus is God. We would agree. Jesus says he doesn't know something. Well, the text sure seems to say that. So then the logical conclusion of the biblical skeptic is that, therefore, Jesus is not God. He said he doesn't know any, something, and, well, God knows everything. So how do we answer this? Um, this is actually really an easy question to answer if you read the rest of the Bible, which most biblical skeptics don't. Um, but if you read the rest of the Bible, you understand that a Jesus is in his state of humiliation at this point. So to illustrate this for you, I want you to play along with me. Everybody close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes, and if you don't, you're cheating, and I don't like it. <laughs> now, keeping your eyes closed, tell me how many fingers am I holding up? Okay, you can open your eyes. How many fingers was I holding up? 
Nobody knows, right? Which leads me to the conclusion you are all blind. Of course not. You're very capable of seeing, but in obedience to your pastor, you closed your eyes for a moment so that you could not see. The exact same thing is true with Jesus. Jesus, in obedience to his father, to humiliate himself, as Philippians 2 says, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness so that he could suffer death, even death on a cross for us, chooses not to make use of his glory and his power for a time. This is very simple. This is basic Christology. Uh, But what I think is more interesting is actually this question, why? Why doesn't Jesus know? at this point. Because there are other places in the Gospels, you can read them, where Jesus knows things that only God would know. Why does he choose here not to know the day or the hour? Now, to some extent, this is a little bit of speculation, but I, I think I'm inferring from a lot of understanding of Jesus, scriptural understanding of Jesus, to give you this answer. Um, it's because Jesus is your Savior. Let me illustrate it like this. So let's say you have a really rich business person. They go into a women's shelter and uh, they see the women who are there. They're suffering. You know, they have children who are in need. They're maybe on the run from abusive husbands or boyfriends or something like this. And this business person sees this and says, this is great. I want to help these women. In fact, I'm going to finance everything this shelter needs for the rest of its existence. It will never be in want ever. It's a really good thing, right? But here's the problem. That rich business person at the end of the day, goes home to their intact family, their nice house, not needing anything. Jesus is not like that. Jesus, instead of using all the riches of heaven to just fix our problems but keep his distance, stepped into being a human. He made himself uncomfortable. He gave up the glory and riches of heaven so that he could be with you, could be in your shoes, could be you for you in the sight of God. And so when he says he doesn't know, what he's doing is he's completely identifying with you. You know those moments where you're asking why? When you don't know? Why did this happen to me? Why is this happening in my family? Why is this happening in my nation? We get so frustrated and and anxious and depressed about so many things we don't know. Guess what? Jesus knows what that feels like. He knows what it feels like to not know. I was speaking with a woman this week who has had a number of terrible things happen in her life. And this answer, I think, is the Christian answer to why bad things happen to seemingly good people. It doesn't answer exactly why. It doesn't say, here's the specific reason why that specific bad thing happened in your life, but here's what it does answer. God cares. God cares enough to step in it with you. Every other world religion, every other worldview says either, let it go, don't worry about it, or it's your fault and you need to fix it. Christianity uniquely says, God steps into it with you. And in fact, he he steps into it so much so that he doesn't even totally understand. But he goes along with you. You ever had that moment where somebody you respect, maybe it was a, a boss or a coach, a mentor of some sort, a parent maybe, came to you and admitted that they don't really know what they're doing either? 
or that they're suffering like you're suffering? You know that feeling you get that like you respect them and you know their abilities and their position, but they're human to you. They're with you. That's Jesus in the pain and suffering of this life. But he goes a step further. Another illustration. Let's say you have a group of teens, maybe they're like a youth group or something like this, and they're going to spend the weekend living on the street like a homeless person so that they can sort of sympathize, have some compassion on those who suffer from homelessness. That's a really good thing, right? We should all have a certain level of sympathy and compassion for people who don't have the same benefits that we do as, well, upper middle class Western people. But here's the problem. At the end of that weekend, even though they stepped in, they go home but not Jesus. At this very moment, Jesus, the human being, sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus did not step into human flesh for a time and then gave it up to go back to where he was as God. No, he took his human flesh with him. At the right hand of the throne of God, one of us stands advocating for us. God is human now. God didn't give up on us after solving our problems, no, he stayed with us and continues to stay with us. So that whatever you're feeling, whatever you're, you're frustrated by, whatever sin you're holding on to, Jesus knows. He feels it the same way you feel it. See, when Jesus says, I don't even know, what you should understand is he's one of us for all of us. And that every bit of pain or frustration that we've ever felt, Jesus has felt it tenfold for us so that we don't have to feel it forever. But of course, by focusing on this phrase, I'm missing the main point of the verse, which Jesus is trying to communicate to us, which is that no one knows the day or the hour, right? So he's talking about the end of the world and he says, no one knows the day or the hour, not, not the angels, nor me, nor um, only the Father, And I think there's a very easy application of this. Um, We can, of course, think of all the pseudo-Christian teachers who would say they know when the end of the world is coming. There's always somebody predicting when the end of the world is coming. We could say about them, yeah, if they're predicting that the end of the world is coming on this certain date, in this certain year, they are a false teacher. You have my permission to completely disregard anything else they say because they are lying to you. That's probably a pretty easy application of this. Um, But I think there is even maybe a subtle secondary application that we can make. If you're engaged in any form of media, regardless of your political stance or who you're listening to, just about everybody who puts their face on a screen is telling you to be scared about something. Right? If, if this law doesn't get passed, or this person doesn't get in power, or this person gets acquitted, or this person gets convicted, or this doesn't change, or these people aren't held accountable, then everything is going to go wrong. If these people don't obey the laws, if these people don't get this done, the world is going to fall apart. That's essentially what most people on a screen are telling you right now. You understand they're not picking a day, but they're giving you the exact same message. I know when the world is going to end. It's when those people do that thing. That's not comfort. That's fear. That's not unity. That's division. That's separating you from all those other people who don't do the good things that you do. Do you think that sounds like Jesus or Satan? Satan is the one who divides. Satan is the one who sows dissension. Satan loves affections. Satan loves us and them talk. Jesus doesn't. 
Jesus says no one knows so that we would understand that we are all unified in the fact that no one knows. And that when we understand what Jesus has already said, that he has made all of our problems and all of our enemies his footstool, that we don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't care. You should work for justice. You should work for proper government. You should work for peace in your community. You should live a life that makes you a person who can support other people. Absolutely, do all those things. But don't worry about those things. Like, let's just do a hypothetical brain exercise for a moment. Um, let's say Western civilization took like a huge step back and we brought back white on black slavery in this culture. You think Jesus can't get you through that? You think Jesus can't get your church through that? Or let's say in the next year, COVID deaths go from 1 million over the last year and a half to tens of millions of deaths. You think Jesus can't get you through that? You think Jesus can't get our church through that? Or what if some policy comes in place that makes it impossible for Christian churches to worship the same way that they always have, to believe the things that the Bible says? Do you don't think Jesus can get you through that? You don't think Jesus can get your church through that? Of course, care about those things, work for those things, but then remember what Jesus says. No one knows. I got this. It's under my control. So that's the difficult verse. But then we get into this main point, this main chunk of this text that gives us Jesus' response. Maybe the final thing that Jesus is going to finish his speech with, in the same way that hopefully at the end of the sermon, I'm kind of pounding home a main point. Jesus is doing the same thing here at the end of his speech. And to illustrate what his main point is for you, I just want to put the entire text on the screen. You don't have to read it, but I want you to look at those phrases that are highlighted. In every single verse, every single verse of this text, Jesus says something to the effect of, keep watch. Right? He says, be on guard, be alert, keep watch, therefore keep watch, do not let them find you sleeping, watch. I think it's pretty easy to see that Jesus' main point in this text is to keep watch. Right? But I think we all struggle with three temptations when we hear those words of Jesus. Those three temptations are the temptation not to watch, the temptation to watch too much, or the temptation to watch only. I'm going to walk through each of those. First, the temptation to not watch. I think this manifests itself differently in younger people versus older people. For younger people, the temptation to not keep watch is, I think, the temptation to say, Jesus hasn't come back for almost 2,000 years. Odds are he's not coming back in the next five minutes or the next five hours, so I can pretty much do what I want, and, well, Jesus will forgive me afterwards. It tends to be the temptation for younger people. I'm sure it happens to older folks, but tends to be a little bit with younger folks more so. We need to remember the text, what Jesus says, right? That he's coming suddenly, or as Paul says, like a thief in the night. You're not ready for him if you're living a life that doesn't acknowledge that he could come any moment. Makes me think of a friend of mine who uh, was talking about his group of friends, and they all went out for a, a weekend, a boys' weekend, and um, one of the guys suggested something that was rather immoral, and another guy in the group said, I can't do that. What if Jesus comes back while we're there? I wish that would be the, the attitude that I always had in my heart. 
as a relatively young person, um, I still have that temptation to think, what I'm going to do for the next five minutes, it's going to be okay. I'll figure it out afterwards. But I need to hear those words. Jesus could come suddenly. And so in the same way, like I told the children, if Jesus could come any moment, are you prepared? Are you watching? If Jesus can come back this moment or two hours from now or tomorrow or next week, whatever you're doing, would you be proud that he saw you doing it when he came on the clouds? If not, we need to repent. I think this manifests itself in a different way for older folks, though. It seems to me that when you get to about the second half of your life, um, you sort of have life figured out. Not that you have all the answers, but you sort of have a routine. This is how things go. This is what I like. This is what I do. This is how I get things done. And I think the temptation for older folks is to not watch in the sense that they will not be challenged to change anything about the way they live. Right, so younger people, we struggle more with the idea of what we do. Well, I think older folks, you struggle a little bit more with what you don't do. How easy it is once you've gotten yourself into a routine after going to the same job for a decade and a half or more, when you've lived in the same house for a decade and a half or more, to sort of say, I know how much I like of Jesus. This is what I'm comfortable with. I'm not going to change anything about my life. I'm just going to live out my days like this. The temptation is to not watch. The Bible uses this metaphor to talk about the Christian life. It talks about it like a race. Many of those, of those of you who have run a race, you know what happens at the end of the race, right? You run faster. Because you know that once the race is done, there's no need for that energy anymore. The race is over. Let me ask those of you who are 40 years old and older. Are you running faster now as the end of the race gets closer? Or are you doing what our culture tells you to do, which is to slow down, to take some time for yourself, to retire and relax. I'm not saying there's no place in the life of those who have worked for many years to relax and rest. In fact, I'm a big advocate of relaxing and resting, but do we see our lives like Jesus sees them? Whether we're 14 or 40 or 80. The temptation for all of us is to not watch. To say that's a problem I'll deal with some other time. How about the temptation to watch too much? You ever had this happen? You're maybe in a dark street or a dark like, uh, trail through the woods, and you're worried that there might be some danger around you, and so your eyes start to play tricks on you? Ever had this happen? We start to see things that aren't there, and we start to worry about them. I think the same thing happens to Christians when they think about the end of the world. They stare at it so much, trying to figure out what it's going to be like, what's going to happen, that they start to see things that aren't actually there. They start to see things like tribulations and raptures and Satan's little season and marks of the beast and, and millenniums and all these crazy things that aren't actually there. Is that our temptation? Maybe not as much as the first temptation, but it's still a tough one to break. That we would look at the end of the world and we would worry about all these extra things when God's word to us about the end of the world is comfort. I have taken care of all things. My word will not pass away. Keep watch. That's all you need to know. Okay, how about the temptation to watch only? Well, this is probably the longest one and maybe the one that I'll spend, um, I want to dig the deepest on. Because I've, I think there's a temptation in 
modern Western culture to simply be watchers when it comes to Christianity. Uh, Maybe one way to illustrate this for you is uh, once I heard a, a Christian say to me that the Christian church is not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. That's right out of this text. What does Jesus say in the parable? He says that the the master of the house leaves and he puts his servant in charge, each to their assigned task. Every one of you, regardless of age, gender, skin color, socioeconomic status, education, you've been given an assigned task. But how many of us just step back and treat Christianity like our spiritual commodities that we can come and get whenever we want? We can live our life however we feel and just hope that Jesus is going to take care of us at the end. Now, I certainly don't want to rob you of the promise of the gospel, which is that your life of sin has been forgiven in Jesus and that even if you are unfaithful, he still remains faithful. But what I'm challenging you to do is to see your life the way the Bible sees it. Our theme for our 2022 worship is going to be a life lived in Christ. The Bible only refers to you as Christians three times, and only one time is it addressing you as Christians. The other times it's just talking about people who call themselves Christians. But the phrase in Christ is used hundreds of times to talk about you. Because anybody can call themselves a Christian. You can call yourself a polka dot pink elephant if you want. But to be in Christ is a state of being. It is a a way to live. It's not a title that you give yourself. In the same way that I have this neighbor who um, is married, uh, but hasn't been living with their spouse for 14 years. Are they still married? Not really. And I think sometimes we have the same relationship with Jesus. I've been calling myself a Christian for a really long time. But being his word every, every Sunday... To pray every day, to pray the Psalms every day, to see my life as one of service to my neighbor and to my church, to see my money or my time or my energy not as my own, but as belonging to Jesus so that I can use them for other people, to boldly speak about Jesus to my neighbors and friends. I mean, if we're not doing those things, we can call ourselves what we want to call ourselves as much as we want, but are we in Christ? It's a different question. So my challenge for all of us is to ask ourselves, am I just a watcher? Am I sitting back and taking Christianity like a social club? Or am I taking it as like a place I gather to worship the God of the universe? Let me challenge you on this. Your pastor has been saying regularly for the three years that he has been your pastor that you should be in church every Sunday if you're here in town. How are we doing at that? And some of you, great, and praise God for that. What about the Lord's Supper? Every Sunday. Because it is the very body and blood of God for the forgiveness of your sins, to protect you for eternal life. Not as good. And yet, as soon as a, a, a doctor or A politician says, get this shot or wear this thing on your face. We all comply. I'm not saying you shouldn't get a shot. I'm not saying you shouldn't wear a mask. I'm asking, who's your God? Are you a watcher? Or do you worship Jesus? 
This is all very challenging stuff and temptations that I deal with too. And so while the, the coming of Jesus is both a challenge, to my, it is a, Christ, a challenge to my Christian life, it is also at the same time this amazing comfort that on that day, Jesus is going to come and take me to a place where none of these things bother me anymore. He's going to take me to a place where all things are right, where all things are made new, where sin doesn't plague me or plague you. Our relationships can be perfect. Our worship can be perfect. Our society can be perfect because Jesus has made it right. Once we understand that, then we can live in a way that keeping watch is not something I have to do because my pastor told me to do it, but because it's something I crave. So, Jesus is coming back, and praise God for that. Now let's back up and see the whole of the Gospel of Mark. Um, when I was going through the, the beginning of the series, I would take the first five or ten minutes of some sermons to give you some contextual points, like here's who Mark is, here's why he wrote, here's who he wrote to. Uh, one of those was the fact that Mark wrote to the Christians who were in Rome. And remember we said at that time, Rome was a city, an empire that loved power. It loved principle. It loved honor. That's the Jesus who you saw this entire year, isn't it? A Jesus who said, I don't care if it makes me uncomfortable. I don't care if I am hated for it. I don't care if people reject me. I'm going to do it because it's right. And thank God that he did. Because he accomplished your salvation. He gave you life when all you deserved was death. He gave you purpose when all you were doing was causing harm to yourself and others. And he calls us to the same. As we look back on this year and then we look, back, look forward to 2022, I hope we are constantly being reminded of who our Jesus is and that we, in Christ, live for him. It might make us uncomfortable. It might lead someone to reject us. It might mean we don't have the same opportunities or able to do the same things we always were able to do. But it's right. And we're going to do it. And my hope is, too, that you would come back to this message. Not this sermon specifically, but the entire Gospel of Mark. It's a resource for you now. It's on our YouTube channel. It's on our website. As you go back and you, in your devotional readings, read through Mark's Gospel, you can know that you have an entire cross-of-life-tailored commentary on the book. I know that even as I get to the end of this year and I think back on the messages that I preached about 300 days ago, some of those things I don't remember. It's good for us to review them, to remind ourselves who our Savior is, and remind ourselves that as we wait, we have the promise that his word will never pass away and that he will come and bring us home. So, brothers and sisters, like Paul says, encourage one another with those words. Support one another, pray for one another, be with one another, challenge one another, comfort one another when sin plagues us, use the law to discomfort us when we feel that we can live however we want. That's the Jesus we saw in the Gospel of Mark, and I pray it's the Jesus that we continue to worship next year and forever. God grant that. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, as we finish up your Olivet Discourse, we realize that a lot of these words are challenging for us. And so we ask that you would give us your Holy Spirit to comfort us with the knowledge of salvation, 
that though we have been unfaithful, you are faithful. And then the comfort that you will come back, that nothing needs to happen for you to take us out of this veil of tears, that the sin that we do and the sin that is done against us will eventually be stilled. And I ask that you bless our next year of worship as we look at what the scripture has to say about a life lived in Jesus. Pray that you would give us boldness to be uncomfortable, peace, that even if we are rejected, you have accepted us, and a heart that loves all people in the same way that you loved us. Lord Jesus, you loved us when we were less moral than you, less put together than you, less valuable than you. And in the same way, you call us to love those who are less moral, less put together, and by the world's standards, less valuable than us. I pray you press that on our hearts. Amen.